Hey everyone, it's me. Hope you're all doing well. Hope you're all staying safe, staying healthy, staying alive. Hope you're all doing well. I haven't had to say, hey, hope your commute's going well for a while, which is nice. I hope no one's having to commute unless you want to commute. And just, just stay safe out there, everyone. For the month of June, we're going to be talking about Algernon Blackwood, and also, we're also going to be talking about Glacky for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Stay with us, and also remember that this show is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slipper. You know, it's, it's, it's getting warm out, but if you're like me, can't sleep having problems, wandering around the house, middle of the night, cleaning. Yeah, linoleum's cold, hardwood floors are cold, ceramics cold, tiles cold. You know what's not cold? Bunny slippers, Highland Cow slippers. Look cool, like uh, what, 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 Chris Knight from Real Genius with Val Kilmer. Get some cool bunny slippers and then head on over to founditemclothing.com and get one of those cool shirts that he wears. I Heart Toxic Waste or Surf Nicaragua or any of those shirts that, I don't know, maybe they're problematic nowadays. I, I, I don't remember what they all are. And you know what? If there was something that you thought was funny before that it's now problematic and you've decided to change your mind about whether or not you think it's problematic or not, you know, you you no longer think that certain jokes in Revenge of the Nerds are funny. Good for you. That's called growth, and it's okay. You're not a you're not a hypocrite if you change your mind. If that you decide that past beliefs aren't what they are, and that you're smarter about it. Remember to use your voice. Remember to vote. Remember to help people who need help. Don't. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't feel like it's my job to tell people what to do. I don't feel like it's my job to. But oh man, I, I sure feel responsible if I don't. I sure feel like I could have said something. Someone could have learned something, and whatever. I feel like I've been bullied in the past by people who don't want to hear what I have to say or don't like what I have to say. And those people can pretty much go away. I don't want them listening to my show. I don't want them writing in. Stay safe, and check the show notes for how you can help people. And here's some Algernon Blackwood, Four Weird Tales for you. Here we go. Four Weird Tales by Algernon Blackwood. Sand. Chapter 9. An hour before sunset, Henriot put his rugs and food upon a donkey and gave the boy directions where to meet him, a considerable distance from the appointed spot. He went himself on foot. He slipped in the heat along the sandy street, where strings of camels still go slouching, shuffling with their loads from the quarries that built the pyramids, and he felt that little friendly Helouan tried to keep him back, but desire now was far too strong for caution. The desert tide was rising, it easily swept him down the long white street towards the enormous deeps beyond. He felt the pull of a thousand miles before him, and twice a thousand years drove at his back. Everything still basked in the sunshine. He passed Al-Hayat, the stately hotel that dominates the village like a palace built against the sky, and in its pillared colonnades and terraces he saw the throngs of people having late afternoon tea and listening to the music of a regimental band. Men in flannels were playing tennis. Parties were climbing off donkeys after long excursions. There was laughter, talking, a babble of many voices. The gaiety called to him. The everyday spirit whispered to stay and join the crowd of lively human beings. Soon there would be merry dinner parties, dancing, voices of pretty women, sweet white dresses, singing, and the rest. Soft eyes would question and turn dark. He picked out several girls he knew among the palms, but it was all many, oh, so many leagues away, 
Centuries lay between him and this modern world. An indescribable loneliness was in his heart. He went searching through the sands of forgotten ages and wandering among the ruins of a vanished time. He hurried. Already the deeper water caught his breath. He climbed the steep rise toward the plateau where the observatory stands and saw two of the officials whom he knew taking a siesta after their long day's work. He felt that his mind, too, had dived and searched among the heavenly bodies that live in silent, changeless peace, remote from the world of men. They recognized him, these two, whose eyes also knew tremendous distance close. They beckoned, waving the straws through which they sipped their drinks from tall glasses. Their voices floated down to him as from the star fields. He saw the sun gleam upon the glasses and heard the clink of the ice against the sides. The stillness was amazing. He waved an answer and passed quickly on. He could not stop the sliding current of the years. The tide moved faster, the draw of piled-up cycles urging it. He emerged upon the plateau and met the cooler desert air. His feet went crunching on the desert film that spread its curious, dark, shiny carpet as far as the eye could reach. It lay everywhere, unswept and smooth as when the feet of vanished civilizations trod its burning surface, then dipped behind the curtains time pins against the stars. And here the body of the tide set all one way. There was a greater strength of current, draft and suction. He felt the powerful undertow. Deeper masses drew his feet sideways, and he felt the rushing of the central body of the sand. The sands were moving from their foundation upwards. He went unresistingly with them. Turning a moment, he looked back at shining little Helouan in the blaze of evening light. The voices reached him very faintly, merged now in a general murmur. Beyond lay the strip of delta, vivid green, the palms, the roof of Bedrashine, the blue laughter of the Nile with its flocks of curved felucca sails. Further still, rising above the yellow Libyan horizon, gloomed the vast triangles of a dozen pyramids, cutting their wedge-shaped clefts out of a sky fast crimsoning through a sea of gold. Seen thus, their dignity imposed upon the entire landscape. They towered darkly, symbolic signatures of the ancient powers that now watched him taking these little steps across their damaged territory. He gazed a minute, then went on. He saw the big pale face of the moon in the east, Above the ever-silent thing these giant symbols once interpreted, she rose, grand, effortless, half-terrible as themselves. And with her she lifted up this tide of the desert that drew his feet across the sand to Wadi Hof. A moment later he dipped below the ridge that buried Helouan and Nile and pyramids from sight. He entered the ancient waters. Time then, in an instant, flowed back behind his footsteps, obliterating every trace. And with it his mind went too. He stepped across the gulf of centuries, moving into the past. The desert lay before him, an open tomb wherein his soul should read presently of things long vanished. The strange half-lights of sunset began to play their witchery then upon the landscape. A purple glow came down upon the Mogatam hills. Perspective danced its tricks of false, incredible deception. The soaring kites that were a mile away seemed suddenly close, passing in a moment from the size of gnats to birds with a fabulous stretch of wing. Ridges and cliffs rushed close without a hint of warning, and level places sank into declivities and basins that made him trip and stumble. That indescribable quality of the desert, which makes timid souls avoid the hour of dusk, emerged. It spread everywhere, undisguised, and the bewilderment it brings is no vain imagined thing, 
for it distorts vision utterly, and the effect upon the mind when familiar sight goes floundering is the simplest way in the world of dragging the anchor that grips reality. At the hour of sunset this bewilderment comes upon a man with a disconcerting swiftness. It rose now with all this weird rapidity. Henriot found himself enveloped at a moment's notice. But, knowing well its effect, he tried to judge it and pass on. The other matters, the object of his journey chief of all, he refused to dwell upon with any imagination. Wisely, his mind, while never losing sight of it, declined to admit the exaggeration that over-elaborate thinking brings. I'm going to witness an incredible experiment in which two enthusiastic religious dreamers believe firmly, he repeated to himself. I have agreed to draw anything I see. There may be truth in it, or they may be merely self-suggested vision due to an artificial exaltation of their minds. I am interested, perhaps against my better judgment, yet I'll see the adventure out, because I must." This was the attitude he told himself to take. Whether it was the real one, or merely adopted to warm a cooling courage, he could not tell. The emotions were so complex and warring. His mind automatically kept repeating this comforting formula. Deeper than that, he could not see to judge, for a man who knew the full content of his thought at such a time would solve some of the oldest psychological problems in the world. Sand had already buried judgment, and with it all attempt to explain the adventure by the standards acceptable to his brain of today, he steered subconsciously through a world of dim, huge, half-remembered wonders. The sun, with that abrupt Egyptian suddenness, was below the horizon now. The pyramid field had swallowed it. Ra, in his golden boat, sailed distant seas beyond the Libyan wilderness. Henriot walked on and on, aware of utter loneliness. He was walking fields of dream, too remote from modern life to recall companionship he once had surely known. How dim it was! How deep and distant! How lost in this sea of an incalculable past! He walked into the places that are soundless. The soundlessness of ocean miles below the surface was about him. He was with one only, this unfathomable, silent thing where nothing breathes or stirs, nothing but sunshine, shadow, and the wind-borne sand. Slowly in front the moon climbed up the eastern sky, hanging above the silence, silence that ran unbroken across the horizons to where Suez gleamed upon the waters of a sister sea in motion. That moon was glinting now upon the Arabian mountains by its desolate shores. Southwards stretched the wastes of Upper Egypt a thousand miles to meet the Nubian wilderness. But over all these separate deserts stirred the soft whisper of the moving sand, deep murmuring message that life was on the way to unwind death. The Ka of Egypt, swathed in centuries of sand, hovered beneath the moon towards her ancient tenement. For the transformation of the desert now began in earnest. It grew apace. Before he had gone the first two miles of his hour's journey, the twilight caught the rocky hills and twisted them into those monstrous revelations of physiognomies they barely take the trouble to conceal even in the daytime. And while he well understood the eroding agencies that have produced them, there yet rose in his mind a deeper interpretation lurking just behind their literal meanings. Here, through the motionless surfaces, that nameless thing the desert ill-conceals urged outwards into embryonic form and shape, akin, he almost felt, to those immense deific symbols of other life the Egyptians knew and worshipped. Hence from the desert had first come, he felt, the unearthly life they typified in their monstrous figures of granite, evoked in their stately temples and communed with in the ritual of their mystery ceremonials. This watching aspect of the Libyan desert is really natural enough, 
But it is just the natural, Henriot knew, that brings the deepest revelations. The surface limestones resisting the erosion block themselves ominously against the sky, while the softer sand beneath sets them on altered pedestals that define their isolation splendidly. Blunt and unconquerable, these masses now watched him pass between them. The desert surface formed them, gave them birth. They rose, they saw, they sank down again, waves upon a sea that carried forgotten life up from the depths below. Of forbidding, even menacing type, they somewhere mated with genuine grandeur. Unformed according to any standard of human or of animal faces, they achieved an air of giant physiognomy which made them terrible. The unwinking stare of eyes, lidless eyes that yet ever succeed in hiding, looked out under well-marked, level eyebrows, suggesting a vision that included the motives and purposes of his very heart. They looked up grandly, understood why he was there, and then slowly withdrew their mysterious, penetrating gaze. The strata built them so marvelously up, the heavy, threatening brows, thick lips curved by the ages into a semblance of cold smiles, jowls drooping into sandy heaps that climbed against the cheeks, protruding jaws and the suggestion of shoulders just about to lift the entire bodies out of the sandy beds. This host of countenances conveyed a solemnity of expression that seemed everlasting, implacable as death. Of human signature they bore no trace, nor was comparison possible between their kind and any animal life. They peopled the desert here, and their smiles, concealed yet just discernible, went broadening with the darkness into a desert laughter. The silence bore it underground. But Henriot was aware of it. The troop of faces slipped into that single enormous countenance which is the visage of the sand, and he saw it everywhere, yet nowhere. Thus with the darkness grew his imaginative interpretation of the desert, yet there was construction in it, a construction, moreover, that was not entirely his own. Powers, he felt, were rising, stirring, wakening from sleep. Behind the natural faces that he saw, these other things peered gravely at him as he passed. They used, as it were, materials that lay ready to their hand. Imagination furnished these hints of outline, yet the powers themselves were real. There was this amazing movement of the sand. By no other manner could his mind have conceived of such a thing, nor dreamed of this simple, yet dreadful method of approach. Approach! That was the word that first stood out and startled him. There was approach. Something was drawing nearer. The desert rose and walked beside him. For not alone these ribs of gleaming limestone contributed towards the elemental visages, but the entire hills, of which they were an outcrop, ran to assist in the formation and were a necessary part of them. He was watched and stared at from behind, in front, on either side, and even from below. The sand that swept him on kept even pace with him. It turned luminous, too, with a patchwork of glimmering effect that was indescribably weird. Lanterns glowed within its substance, and by their light he stumbled on, glad of the Arab boy he would presently meet at the appointed place. The last torch of the sunset had flickered out, melting into the wilderness, when suddenly opening at his feet gaped the deep, wide gully known as Wadi Hoth. Its curve swept past him. This first impression came upon him with a certain violence, that the desolate valley rushed, he saw but a section of its curve and sweep, but through its entire length of several miles the wadi fled away. The moon whitened it like snow, piling black shadows very close against the cliffs. In the flood of moonlight it went rushing past. It was emptying itself. 
For a moment the stream of movement seemed to pause and look up into his face, then instantly went on again upon its swift career. It was like the procession of a river to the sea. The valley emptied itself to make way for what was coming. The approach, moreover, had already begun. Conscious that he was trembling, he stood and gazed into the depths, seeking to steady his mind by the repetition of the little formula he had used before. He said it half aloud, but while he did so his heart whispered quite other things. Thoughts the woman and the man had sown rose up in a flock and fell upon him like a storm of sand. Their impetus drove off all support of ordinary ideas. They shook him where he stood, staring down into this river of strange invisible movement that was hundreds of feet in depth and a quarter of a mile across. He sought to realize himself as he actually was today, mere visitor to Helouan, tempted into this wild adventure with two strangers. But in vain. That seemed a dream, unreal, a transient detail picked out from the enormous past that now engulfed him, heart and mind and soul. This was the reality. The shapes and faces that the hills of sand built round him were the play of excited fancy only. By sheer force he pinned his thought against this fact, but further he could not get. There were powers at work. They were being stirred, wakened somewhere into activity. Evocation had already begun. That sense of their approach as he had walked along from Helouan was not imaginary a descent of some type of life, vanished from the world too long for recollection, was on the way, so vast that it would manifest itself in a group of forms, a troop, a host, an army. These two were near him somewhere at this very moment, already long at work, their minds driving beyond this little world. The valley was emptying itself for the descent of life their ritual invited. And the movement in the sand was likewise true. He recalled the sentences the woman had used. My body, he reflected, like the bodies life makes use of everywhere, is mere upright heap of earth and dust and sand. Here in the desert is the raw material, the greatest store of it in the world and on the heels of it came sharply that other thing, that this descending life would press into its service all loose matter within its reach to form that sphere of action which would be in a literal sense its body. In the first few seconds as he stood there he realized all this, and realized it with an overwhelming conviction it was futile to deny. The fast-emptying valley would later brim with an unaccustomed and terrific life. Yet death hid there too, a little ugly insignificant death. With the name of Vance it flashed upon his mind and vanished, too tiny to be thought about in this torrent of grander messages that shook the depths within his soul. He bowed his head a moment, hardly knowing what he did. He could have waited thus a thousand years, it seemed. He was conscious of a wild desire to run away, to hide, to efface himself utterly, his terror, his curiosity, his little wonder, and not be seen of anything. But it was all vain and foolish. The desert saw him. The gigantic knew that he was there. No escape was possible any longer. Caught by the sand, he stood amid eternal things. The river of movement swept him, too. These hills, now motionless as statues, would presently glide forward into the cavalcade, sway like vessels, and go past with the procession. At present only the contents, not the frame of the wadi, moved. An immense soft brush of moonlight swept it empty for what was on the way. But presently the entire desert would stand up and also go. Then, making a sideways movement, his feet kicked against something soft and yielding that lay heaped upon the desert floor. 
and Henriot discovered the rugs the Arab boy had carefully set down before he made full speed for the friendly lights of Helwan. The sound of his departing footsteps had long since died away. He was alone. The detail restored to him his consciousness of the immediate present, and, stooping, he gathered up the rugs and overcoat and began to make preparations for the night. But the appointed spot, whence he was to watch, lay upon the summit of the opposite cliffs. He must cross the wadi bed and climb. Slowly and with labor he made his way down a steep cleft into the depth of the wadi hof, sliding and stumbling often, till at length he stood upon the floor of shining moonlight. It was very smooth, windless, utterly, still as space. Each particle of sand lay in its ancient place, asleep. The movement, it seemed, had ceased. He clambered next up the eastern side, through pitch-black shadows, and within the hour reached the ledge upon the top whence he could see below him, like a silvered map, the sweep of the valley bed. The wind nipped keenly here again, coming over the leagues of cooling sand. Loose boulders of splintered rock, started by his climbing, crashed and boomed into the depths. He banked the rugs beneath him, wrapped himself in his overcoat, and lay down to wait. Behind him was a two-foot crumbling wall against which he leaned, in front a drop of several hundred feet through space. He lay upon a platform, therefore, invisible from the desert at his back. Below the curving wadi formed a natural amphitheater, in which each separate boulder fallen from the cliffs, and even the little scylla shrubs the camels eat, were plainly visible. He noted all the bigger ones among them. He counted them over half aloud. And the moving stream he'd been unaware of when crossing the bed itself now began again. The wadi went rushing past before the broom of moonlight. Again the enormous and the tiny combined in one single strange impression, for through his conception of great movement stirred also a roving, delicate touch that his imagination felt as bird-like. Behind the solid mass of the desert's immobility flashed something swift and light and airy, bizarre pictures interpreted to him like rapid snapshots of a huge flying panorama. He thought of darting dragonflies seen at Helouan, of children's little dancing feet, of twinkling butterflies, of birds, chiefly, yes, of a flock of birds in flight, whose separate units formed a single entity. The idea of the group soul possessed his mind once more, but it came with a sense of more than curiosity or wonder. Veneration lay behind it, a veneration touched with awe. It rose in his deepest thought that here was the first hint of a symbolical representation, a symbol, sacred and inviolable, belonging to some ancient worship that he half remembered in his soul, stirred towards interpretation through all his being. He lay there waiting, wondering vaguely where his two companions were, Yet fear all vanished because he felt attuned to a scale of things too big to mate with definite dread. There was a high anticipation in him, but not anxiety. Of himself, as Felix Henriot, indeed, he hardly seemed aware. He was someone else. Or rather, he was himself at a stage he'd known once, far, far away, in a remote pre-existence. He watched himself from dim summits of a past of which no further details were as yet recoverable. Pencil and sketching block lay ready to his hand. The moon rose higher, tucking the shadows ever more closely against the precipices. The silver passed into a sheet of snowy whiteness that made every boulder clearly visible. Solemnity deepened everywhere into awe. The wadi fled silently down the stream of hours. It was almost empty now. And then, abruptly, he was aware of change. The motion altered somewhere. It moved more quietly. Pace slackened. The end of the procession that evacuated the depth and length of it went trailing past, 
and turned the distant bend. It's slowing up, he whispered, as sure of it as though he'd watched a regiment of soldiers filing by. The wind took off his voice like a flying feather of sound. And there was a change. It had begun. Night and the moon stood still to watch and listen. The wind dropped utterly away. The sand ceased its shifting movement. The desert everywhere stopped still and turned. Some curtain, then, that for centuries had veiled the world, drew softly up, leaving a shaded vista down which the eyes of his soul peered towards long-forgotten pictures. Still buried by the sands too deep for full recovery, he had perceived dim portions of them, things once honored and loved passionately. For once they had surely been to him the whole of life, not merely a fragment for cheap wonder to inspect, and they were curiously familiar, even as the person of this woman who now evoked them was familiar. Henriot made no pretense to more definite remembrance, but the haunting certainty rushed over him deeper than doubt or denial, and with such force that he felt no effort to destroy it. Some lost sweetness of spiritual ambitions lived for with this passionate devotion and passionately worshipped as men today worship fame and money revived in him with a tempest of high glory centers of memory stirred from an age-long sleep so that he could have wept at their so complete obliteration hitherto that such majesty had departed from the world as though it had never existed was a thought for desolation and for tears and though the little fragment he was about to witness might be crude in itself and incomplete, yet it was part of a vast system that once explored the richest realms of deity. The reverence in him contained a holiness of the night and of the stars. Great, gentle awe lay in it too, for he stood, aflame with anticipation and humility, at the gateway of sacred things. And this was the mood no thrill of cheap excitement or alarm to weaken it, in which he first became aware that two spots of darkness he had taken all along for boulders on the snowy valley bed were actually something very different. They were living figures. They moved. It was not the shadows slowly following the moonlight, but the stir of human beings, who all these hours had been motionless as stone. He must have passed them unnoticed within a dozen yards when he crossed the wadi bed, and a hundred times from this very ledge his eyes had surely rested on them without recognition. Their minds, he knew full well, had not been inactive as their bodies. The important part of the ancient ritual lay, he remembered, in the powers of the evoking mind. Here, indeed, was no effective nor theatrical approach of the principal figures. It had nothing in common with the cheap external ceremonial of modern days. In forgotten powers of the soul its grandeur lay, potent, splendid, true. Long before he came, perhaps all through the day, these two had labored with their arduous preparations. They were there, part of the desert when hours ago he had crossed the plateau in the twilight. To them, to this woman's potent working of old ceremonial, had been due that singular rush of imagination he had felt. He had interpreted the desert as alive. Here was the explanation. It was alive. Life was on the way. Long latent, her intense desire summoned it back to physical expression and the effect upon him had steadily increased as he drew nearer to the center where she would focus its revival and return. Those singular impressions of being watched and accompanied were explained. A priest of this old world worship performed a genuine evocation. A great one of vision revived the cosmic powers. Henriot watched the small figures far below him with a sense of dramatic splendor that only this association of far-off memory could account for. It was their rising now and the lifting of their arms to form a slow revolving outline that marked the abrupt cessation of the larger river of movement.
for the sweeping of the wadi sank into sudden stillness and these two, with motions not unlike some dance of deliberate solemnity, passed slowly through the moonlight to and fro. His attention fixed upon them both. All other movement ceased. They fastened the flow of time against the desert's body. What happened then? How could his mind interpret an experience so long denied that the power of expression, as of comprehension, has ceased to exist? How to translate this symbolical representation, small detail though it was, of a transcendent worship entombed for most so utterly beyond recovery? Its splendor could never lodge in minds that conceived deity perched upon a cloud within telephoning distance of fashionable churches. How should he phrase it even to himself, whose memory drew up pictures from so dim a past that the language fit to frame them lay unreachable and lost? Henriot did not know. Perhaps he never yet has known. Certainly at the time he did not even try to think. His sensations remain his own, untranslatable, and even that instinctive description the mind gropes for automatically floundered, halted and stopped dead. Yet there rose within him somewhere, from depths long drowned in slumber, a reviving power by which he saw, divined, and recollected, remember seemed too literal a word, these elements of a worship he once had personally known. He too had worshipped thus, his soul had moved amid similar evocations in some aeonian past, whence now the sand was being cleared away. Symbols of stupendous meaning flashed and went their way across the lifting mists. He hardly caught their meaning, so long it was since he had known them, yet they were familiar as the faces seen in dreams, and some hint of their spiritual significance left faint traces in his heart by means of which their grandeur reached towards interpretation. And all were symbols of a cosmic, deific nature of powers that only symbols can express, prayer-books and sacraments used in the wisdom religion of an older time, but today known only in the decrepit literal shell which is their degradation. Grandly the figures moved across the valley bed. The powers of the heavenly bodies once more joined them. They moved to the measure of a cosmic dance whose rhythm was creative. The universe partnered them. There was this transfiguration of all common external things. He realized that appearances were visible letters of a soundless language, a language he once had known. The powers of night and moon and desert sand married with points in the fluid stream of his innermost spiritual being that knew and welcomed them. He understood. Old Egypt herself stooped down from her uncovered throne, the stars sent messengers. There was commotion in the secret sandy places of the desert, for the desert had grown temple. Columns reared against the sky. There rose from leagues away the chanting of the sand. The temples where once this came to pass were gone, their ruin questioned by alien hearts that knew not their spiritual meaning. But here the entire desert swept in to form a shrine, and the majesty that once was Egypt stepped grandly back across ages of denial and neglect. The sand was altar, and the stars were altar lights. The moon lit up the vast recesses of the ceiling, and the wind from a thousand miles brought in the perfume of her incense. For with that faith which shifts mountains from their sandy bed, two passionate believing souls invoked the Ka of Egypt. And the motions that they made, he saw, were definite, harmonious patterns their dark figures traced upon the shining valley floor, like the points of compasses with stems invisible and directed from the sky, their movements marked the outlines of great signatures of power, the sigils of the type of life they would evoke. It would come as a procession. No individual outline could contain it. It needed for its visible expression many. The descent of a group soul, known to the worship of this mighty system, 
rose from its lair of centuries and moved hugely down upon them. The Ka, answering to the summons, would mate with sand. The desert was its body. Yet it was not this that he'd come to fix with block and pencil. Not yet was the moment when his skill might be of use. He waited, watched, and listened, while this river of half-remembered things went past him. The patterns grew beneath his eyes like music, too intricate and prolonged to remember with accuracy later. He understood that they were forms of that root geometry which lies behind all manifested life. The mold was being traced in outline. Life would presently inform it, and a singing rose from the maze of lies whose beauty was like the beauty of the constellations. The sound was very faint at first, but grew steadily in volume. Although no echoes, properly speaking, were possible, these precipices caught stray notes that trooped in from the further sandy reaches. The figures certainly were chanting, but their chanting was not all he heard. Other sounds came to his ears from far away, running past him through the air from every side and from incredible distances, all flocking down into the wadi bed to join the parent note that summoned them. The desert was giving voice, and memory, lifting her hood yet higher, showed more of her grey, mysterious face that surged his soul with questions. Had he so soon forgotten that strange union of form and sound which once was known to the evocative rituals of olden days? Henriot tried patiently to disentangle this desert music that their intoning voices woke from the humming of the blood in his own veins, but he succeeded only in part. Sad was already in the air. There was reverberation, rhythm, measure. There was almost the breaking of the stream into great syllables. But was it due, this strange reverberation, to the countless particles of sand meeting in mid-air about him, or to larger bodies whose surfaces caught this friction of the sand and threw it back against his ears? The wind, now rising, brought particles that stung his face and hands, and filled his eyes with the minute fine dust that partially veiled the moonlight. But was not something larger, vaster, these particles composed, now also on the way? Movement and sound and flying sand thus merged themselves more and more in a single whirling torrent. But Henriot sought no commonplace explanation of what he witnessed, and here was the proof that all happened in some vestibule of inner experience where the strain of question and answer had no business. One sitting beside him need not have seen anything at all. His host, for instance, from Helouan, need not have been aware. Night screened it. Helouan, as the whole of modern experience, stood in front of the screen. This thing took place behind it. He crouched motionless, watching in some reconstructed antechamber of the soul's pre-existence, while the torrent grew into a veritable tempest. Yet night remained unshaken, the veil of moonlight did not quiver, the stars dropped their slender golden pillars unobstructed. Calmness reigned everywhere as before, the stupendous representation passed on behind it all. But the dignity of the little human movements that he watched had become now indescribable. The gestures of the arms and bodies invested themselves with consummate grandeur as these two strode into the caverns behind manifested life and drew forth symbols that represented vanished powers. The sound of their chanting voices broke in cadenced fragments against the shores of language. The words Henriot never actually caught, if words they were, yet he understood their purport. These names of power to which the type of returning life gave answer as they approached, he remembered fumbling for his drawing materials with such violence, however, that the pencil snapped in two between his fingers as he touched it, for now, even here upon the outer fringe of the ceremonial ground, there was a stir of forces that set the very muscles working in him before he had become aware of it. 
Then came the moment when his heart leaped against his ribs with a sudden violence that was almost pain, standing a second later still as death. The lines upon the valley floor ceased their maze-like dance. All movements stopped. Sound died away. In the midst of this profound and dreadful silence, the sigils lay empty there below him. They waited to be informed, for the moment of entrance had come at last. Life was close. And he understood why this return of life had all along suggested a procession, and could be no mere momentary flash of vision. From such appalling distance did it sweep down towards the present. Upon this network, then, of splendid lines at length held rigid, the entire desert reared itself with walls of curtained sand that dwarfed the cliffs, the shouldering hills, the very sky. The desert stood on end, as once before he had dreamed it from his balcony windows, it rose upright, towering and close against his face. It built sudden ramparts to the stars that chambered the thing he witnessed behind walls no centuries could ever bring down crumbling into dust. He himself, in some curious fashion, lay just outside, viewing it apart. As from a pinnacle he peered within, peered down with straining eyes into the vast picture gallery memory threw abruptly open and the picture spaced its noble outline thus against the very stars. He gazed between columns that supported the sky itself like pillars of sand that swept across the field of vanished years. Sand poured and streamed aside, laying bare the past. For down the enormous vista into which he gazed as into an avenue running a million miles toward the tiny point he saw this moving thing that came towards him, shaking loose the countless veils of sand the ages had swathed about it. The Ka of buried Egypt wakened out of sleep. She had heard the potent summons of her old time-honored ritual. She came. She stretched forth an arm towards the worshippers who evoked her. Out of the desert, out of the leagues of sand, out of the immeasurable wilderness which was her mummied form and body, she rose and came, and this fragment of her he would actually see, this little portion that was obedient to the stammered and broken ceremonial, the partial revelation he would witness, yet so vast even this little bit of it, that it came as a procession and a host. For a moment there was nothing and then the voice of the woman rose in a resounding cry that filled the wadi to its furthest precipices before it died away again to silence. That a human voice could produce such volume, accent, depth, seemed half incredible. The walls of towering sand swallowed it instantly, but the procession of life, needing a group, a host, an army for its physical expression, reached at that moment the nearer end of the huge avenue. It touched the present. It entered the world of men. End of chapter 9 of Sand Four Weird Tales by Algernon Blackwood Sand Chapter 10 the entire range of Henriot's experience, read, imagined, dreamed, then fainted into unreality before the sheer wonder of what he saw. In the brief interval it takes to snap the fingers, the climax was thus so hurriedly upon him, and through it all he was clearly aware of the pair of little human figures, man and woman, standing erect and commanding at the center knew, too, that she directed and controlled, while he, in some secondary fashion, supported her, and ever watched. But both were dim, dropped somewhere into a lesser scale. It was the knowledge of their presence, however, that alone enabled him to keep his powers in hand at all. But for these two human beings there, with impossible reach, he must have closed his eyes and swooned. 
for a tempest that seemed to toss loose stars about the sky swept round about him, pouring up the pillared avenue in front of the procession. A blast of giant energy, of liberty, came through. Forwards and backwards, circling spirally about him like a whirlwind, came this revival of life that sought to dip itself once more in matter and in form. It came to the accurate outline of its form they had traced for it. He held his mind steady enough to realize that it was akin to what men call a descent of some spiritual movement that wakens a body of believers into faith, a race, an entire nation, only that he experienced it in this brief concentrated form before it has scattered down into ten thousand hearts. Here he knew its source and essence behind the veil. Crudely, unmanageable as yet, he felt it rushing loose behind appearances. There was this amazing impact of a twisting, swinging force that stormed down as though it would bend and coil the very ribs of the old stubborn hills. It sought to warm them with the stress of its own irresistible life-stream, to beat them into shape and make pliable their obstinate resistance. Through all things the impulse poured and spread like fire at white heat. Yet nothing visible came as yet, no alteration in the actual landscape, no sign of change in things familiar to his eyes, while impetus thus fought against inertia. He perceived nothing formal. Calm and untouched himself, he lay outside the circle of evocation, watching, waiting, scarcely daring to breathe, yet well aware that any minute the scene would transfer itself from memory that was subjective to matter that was objective. And then, in a flash, the bridge was built and the transfer was accomplished. How or where he did not see, he could not tell. It was there before he knew it, there before his normal earthly sight. He saw it as he saw the hands he was holding stupidly up to shield his face. For this terrific release of force, long held back, long stored up, latent for centuries, came pouring down the empty wadi bed prepared for its reception. Through stones and sand and boulders it came in an impetuous hurricane of power. The liberation of its life appalled him. All that was free, untied, responded instantly like chaff. Loose objects fled towards it. There was a yielding in the hills and precipices, and even in the mass of desert which provided their foundation. The hinges of the sand went creaking in the night. It shaped for itself a bodily outline. Yet, most strangely, nothing definitely moved. How could he express the violent contradiction? For the immobility was apparent only, a sham, a counterfeit, while behind it the essential being of these things did rush and shift and alter. He saw the two things side by side, the outer immobility the senses commonly agree upon, and this amazing flying out of their inner invisible substance towards the vortex of attracting life that sucked them in. For stubborn matter turned docile before the stress of this returning life, taught somewhere to be plastic. It was being molded into an approach to bodily outline. A mobile elasticity invaded rigid substance. The two officiating human beings, safe at the stationary center, and himself, just outside the circle of operation, alone remained untouched and unaffected. But a few feet in any direction, for any one of them, meant instantaneous death. They would be absorbed into the vortex, mere corpuscles pressed into the service of the sphere of action of a mighty body. How these perceptions reached him with such conviction, Henriot could never say. He knew it because he felt it. Something fell about him from the sky that already paled towards the dawn. The stars themselves, it seemed, contributed some part of the terrific flowing impulse that conquered matter and shaped itself as physical expression. Then, before he was able to fashion any preconceived idea of what visible form this potent life might assume, he was aware of further change. 
It came at the briefest possible interval after the beginning, the certainty that to and fro about him, as yet however indeterminate, past magnitudes that were stupendous as the desert. There was beauty in them too, though a terrible beauty hardly of this earth at all. A fragment of old Egypt had returned, a little portion of that vast body of belief that once was Egypt, evoked by the worship of one human heart, passionately sincere, the Ka of Egypt stepped back to visit the material at once informed, the sand. Yet only a portion came. Henriot clearly realized that. It stretched forth an arm, finding no mass of worshippers through whom it might express itself completely, it pressed inanimate matter thus into its service. Here was the beginning the woman had spoken of, little opening clue, entire reconstruction lay perhaps beyond. And Henriot next realized that these magnitudes in which this group energy sought to clothe itself as visible form were curiously familiar. It was not a new thing that he would see booming softly as they dropped downwards through the sky with a motion the size of them rendered delusive they trooped up the avenue towards the central point that summoned them he realized the giant flock of them descent of fearful beauty outlining a type of life denied to the world for ages countless as the sand that blew against his skin careering over the waste of desert moved the army of dark splendors that dwarfed any organic structure called a body men have ever known. He recognized them cold in him of death, though the outlines reared higher than the pyramids and towered up to hide whole groups of stars. Yes, he recognized them in their partial revelation, though he never saw the monstrous host complete. But one of them, he realized, posing its eternal riddle to the sands, had of old been glimpsed sufficiently to seize its form in stone, yet poorly seized, as a doll may stand for the dignity of a human being, or a child's toy represent an engine that draws trains. And he knelt there on this narrow ledge, the world of men forgotten. The power that caught him was too great a thing for wonder or for fear. He even felt no awe. Sensation of any kind that can be named or realized left him utterly. He forgot himself. He merely watched. The glory numbed him. Block and pencil as the reason of his presence there at all no longer existed. Yet one small link remained that held him to some kind of consciousness of earthly things. He never lost sight of this. That, being just outside the circle of evocation, he was safe and that the man and woman being stationary in its untouched center were also safe, but that a movement of six inches in any direction meant for any one of them instant death. What was it then that suddenly strengthened this solitary link, so that the chain tautened and he felt the pull of it? Henriot could not say. He came back with the rush of a descending drop to the realization, dimly, vaguely as from a distance, that he was with these two, now at this moment, in the Wadi Hof, and that the cold of dawn was in the air about them. The chill breath of the desert made him shiver. But at first, so deeply had his soul been dipped in this fragment of ancient worship, he could remember nothing more. Somewhere lay a little spot of streets and houses. Its name escaped him. He had once been there. There were many people, but insignificant people. Who were they? And what had he to do with them? All recent memories had been drowned in the tide that flooded him from an immeasurable past. And who were they, these two beings, standing on the white floor of sand below him? For a long time he could not recover their names, yet he remembered them, and, thus robbed of association that names bring, he saw them for an instant naked, and knew that one of them was evil, one of them was vile, 
blackness touched the picture there. The man, his name still out of reach, was sinister, impure and dark at the heart, and for this reason the evocation had been partial only. The admixture of an evil motive was the flaw that marred complete success. The names then flashed upon him. Lady Statham. Richard Vance. Vance, with a horrid drop from splendor into something mean and sordid, Henriot felt the pain of it. The motive of the man was so insignificant, his purpose so atrocious. More and more with the name came back his first repugnance, fear, suspicion, and human terror caught him. He shrieked, but as in nightmare no sound escaped his lips. He tried to move. A wild desire to interfere, to protect, to prevent, flung him forward, close to the dizzy edge of the gulf below. But his muscles refused obedience to the will. The paralysis of common fear rooted him to the rocks. But the sudden change of focus instantly destroyed the picture, and so vehement was the fall from glory into meanness that it dislocated the machinery of clairvoyant vision. The inner perception clouded and grew dark. Outer and inner mingled in violent, inextricable confusion. The wrench seemed almost physical. It happened all at once. Retreat and continuation for a moment somehow combined. And if he did not definitely see the awful thing, at least he was aware that it had come to pass. He knew it as positively as though his eye were glued against a magnifying lens in the stillness of some laboratory. He witnessed it. The supreme moment of evocation was close. Life, through that awful sandy vortex, whirled and raged. Loose particles showered and pelted, caught by the draft of vehement life that molded the substance of the desert into imperial outline when suddenly shot the little evil thing across that marred and blasted it. Into the whirlpool flew forward a particle of material that was a human being, and the group soul caught and used it. The actual accomplishment Henriot did not claim to see. He was a witness, but a witness who could give no evidence. Whether the woman was pushed of set intention, or whether some detail of sound and pattern was falsely used to effect the terrible result, he was helpless to determine. He pretends no itemized account. She went. In one second, with appalling swiftness, she disappeared, swallowed out of space and time within that awful maw. One little corpuscle among a million through which the life, now stalking the desert wastes, molded itself a troop-like body. Sand took her. There followed emptiness, a hush of unutterable silence, stillness, peace. Movement and sound instantly retired whence they came. The avenues of memory closed. The splendors all went down into their sandy tombs. The moon had sunk into the Libyan wilderness. The eastern sky was red. The dawn drew out that wondrous sweetness of the desert, which is as sister to the sweetness that the moonlight brings. The desert settled back to sleep, huge, unfathomable, charged to the brim with life that watches, waits, and yet conceals itself behind the ruins of apparent desolation and the wadi, empty at his feet, filled slowly with the gentle little winds that bring the sunrise. Then, across the pale glimmering of sand, Henriot saw a figure moving. It came quickly towards him, yet unsteadily, and with a hurry that was ugly. Vance was on the way to fetch him and the horror of the man's approach struck him like a hammer in the face. He closed his eyes, sinking back to hide. But before he swooned, there reached him the clatter of the murderer's tread as he began to climb over the splintered rocks, and the faint echo of his voice calling him by name, falsely, 
and in pretense for help. End of chapter 10 of Sand Four Weird Tales by Algernon Blackwood <laughs>